Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. The guest today is Kara Collier. Kara is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, licensed dietitian, nutritionist, and certified nutrition support clinician who specializes in glucose control and metabolism. She graduated from Purdue University and previously worked at Memphis VA Medical Center as a clinical dietitian and at Providence Hospital and in a management role at Nutrinix. She is the co-founder and VP of Health at Nutrisense. So with Kara's background and education in glucose, I wanted to talk to her a bit about just how her body responds to different foods, timing, lifestyles, and things like that with glucose. And with that, how are these new devices that are now on the market called continuous glucose monitors informing us and impacting the way we look and view food and the way we kind of go about our, our, our nutrition with that. So we dove into a lot of different topics. Uh, one that kind of sticks out in my mind is just this idea of adding versus subtracting to our nutritional approach. Cause I think a lot of times when we get into health and nutrition, it becomes this game of what should I get rid of? What is doing me harm? What can I take away versus what are things we can add to this to make things better that aren't going to come with you know, a lot of unforeseen consequences and stuff like that. So I wanted to hear about all of that and how these devices have been used so far, what data they've kind of pulled from them uh, at Nutrisense and what are some of the things that are kind of coming up on the horizon with it as well. We, uh, I had a long list of topics to chat with, uh, with, Caro for, we got through all of it. She was very efficient. So we did a pretty good dive into continuous glucose monitoring and glucose control in general. I think you'll walk away with some interesting takeaways or ideas that you maybe want to play around with yourself uh, after kind of thinking about some of the information we had here. Uh, coming up on the show, uh, if you are on the show's Patreon page, you may have already seen this. I have a couple episodes, or actually a few episodes up there right now, and those include uh, an interview I did with Alan Argon. Alan is uh, recently just had a new book called The Flexible Diet. So he is uh, has an interesting approach where it's like, let's make sure we plug in some of the things that we need and kind of start there. And then from there, start looking at how we can use or fill the rest of our nutrition in, in a flexible way in order to personalize it. Uh, one of the interesting things that Al and I chatted about was just this idea of uh, food guidelines in general, which personally, I've talked about this on the show before, I find very restrictive in the sense that they tend to say this is the way to go. And if it doesn't really work well at the for an individual, it's almost kind of like you're forced to maybe say this is what I have to do versus looking at food as something that's a little more individual and everyone's preferences and tolerances, ability to sustain a certain approach is going to be different. And I think with Alan's approach, he covers a lot of those bases. You can personalize and individualize it enough where if you do like a certain way of eating, you can use his information to make sure you're doing it the right way 
And I find that a lot more inviting than telling people you have to eat one specific way. So that was a fun chat with Alan. He's also very well researched on the topic of protein. So we dove into some of that as well with you know, different lifestyles, different recommendations and things like that. Um, also coming up on the show, I have uh, an interview with uh, Vinny Crispino, who uh is a really interesting guy. So he was a competitive division one swimmer in college, moved out West, tried to take on surfing, ended up breaking his back while surfing one day, drug himself out of the water and back to his car. And, you know, eventually the next day made his way to the hospital and uh, was diagnosed with, you know, essentially broken back and given the option to fuse, fuse uh, some of his vertebrae together, which he wasn't super excited about because it was going to limit what he thought would be his full potential. So he took an alternative route to that. And along the way, and ended up being like a nearly 10 year journey, he uh, started uh, a company called pain Academy, which is basically looking at what are some things that we can do, whether we're already in pain or not yet in pain, I'll say not yet, because I think as you age, there are just certain things that tend to not feel as, as, as nice as maybe they did in our youth. Uh, what can we do to kind of like clean up our environment in a way where it's more conducive to uh, not have that be part of our normalization of lifestyle? And that's kind of what his move is at Pain Academy. So I wanted to hear about his journey, his story, as well as Pain Academy, what they're doing over there, what their approach is, and ultimately chat a bit about his next big goal, which is to take on an ultra marathon. He's going to be running a 50 miler here this year, which he's currently preparing for. So near the end of that interview, he kind of turned the tables on me a little bit and started asking some questions, mostly about kind of the mental approach to, to ultra marathon. So we dove into that topic a little bit at the end as well. So all those episodes are up on the show Patreon page. If you're interested, those are ad free and uh, early release. So as those will eventually become available to the public, if you can't wait and you want to get them ad free now, heading the show's Patreon page is a great way to do that. You can get the link to that at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. Um, zachbitter.com forward slash HPO also is kind of the landing page for all the previous episodes or currently public episodes too. So if you want more details and links and things about the show and kind of comb through the catalog, so to speak, you can also head over there for that. Uh, if you want to support the show non-monetarily, there are some great options, liking, subscribing, sharing and writing a review on your favorite podcast listening platform or YouTube helps me grow the show and spread the word about the episodes. So if you enjoy one, share it with your friends and family on social media or word of mouth, newsletters, whatever it happens to be, helps me out a lot. Finally, if uh, you enjoy or want to check out one of the show sponsors, that is another way to support the show. You can do that by letting them know that you came to them through the Human Performance Outliers podcast. All the show sponsors can be found at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Link to that is also in the show notes. Organ meats are some of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. Despite their benefits, sometimes it can be difficult to incorporate them into your diet. Optimal Carnivore aims at making these nutrients easier to access with their products, which include grass-fed organ complex, bone marrow complex, and grass-fed beef liver. 
These products work great for busy people who are traveling or as they develop an appreciation for organ meats. Their grass-fed organ complex has nine different organs, including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and gallbladder. Bone marrow complex contains the same compounds as bone broth. Their products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. They also plant one tree for every product sold. If interested, you can visit amazon.com forward slash optimal carnivore and use the code human save 10 that's human save one zero for 10% off your next order. As always, all HPO sponsors links discounts can be found by visiting the show sponsor page at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Athletic Greens flagship product AG1 is a supplement that contains 75 high quality vitamin, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that will help start your day right. I like to take one scoop of AG1 first thing in the morning. Usually I'll mix it with about eight ounces of cold water and have that right before my first cup of coffee. I like to take it on an empty stomach because per Athletic Greens, that's the best way to absorb all of those 75 high quality vitamins and minerals the best. So usually I'm heading out for a run after I've been awake for about an hour or so in the morning and I like to have an empty stomach anyway. So that fits nicely there along with my cup of coffee first things first. AG1 is lifestyle friendly and fits into a keto, paleo, low carb, dairy free or gluten free and even vegan diet. It has only one gram of sugar, no GMOs and is free of artificial ingredients. AG1 continually updates their product based on the latest science and third party testing. On top of that, they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I love these travel packs because they're these little green square packages that lay flat and I can just stuff a few of them in my suitcase. And if I'm out of town for a few days, I know I got that first thing in the morning, 75 high-quality vitamin minerals sitting there waiting for me. So if you want to check that out, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You can find links to that in the show notes as well as at zackbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Kara, thank you for taking some time to join the show. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, a topic that I think a lot of the listeners to this podcast, I know myself is very interested in just uh, over the course of probably the last couple of years, actually, it's just kind of come up every now and again through a variety of different topics. I think the first time I really started to think about it from a personal standpoint, being an endurance athlete was I had a uh, Dr. Mark Bubbs on the show and he wrote a, beak, uh, a, a book called Peak. And mm-hmm. in it, they had done, there was a, a small study where they were looking at hundred kilometer racers and they actually subdivided it into kind of elite participants. And then just kind of like hobby runners, if you can consider running a hundred kilometers being a, being a hobby, <laughs> I guess. But the interesting thing about all of that was it was just the way the glucose responses to the recommended fueling strategies per participant, I guess, like current level of ability or 
or, or their, their, their goals, I guess, like the, their, their intensity, they were able to race at and things like that ended up making a difference in the response on the, the CGM monitors and, and kind of like indicated that like the fueling strategy would maybe need to be a little bit different depending on the person and their goals and all that stuff. And I, at that point, I'm like, okay, there's, there's probably more to this than, than the snapshot pinprick, uh, glucose testing that we've done historically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest insights we've had as a team when we're seeing now thousands of people's glucose data is truly how unique each individual is. And there really isn't a one size, a, you know, one size fits all approach where it comes to fueling or where it comes to disease management, disease prevention, regardless of your goal, what we're really seeing with real data is how different we all are. And then that um, is you know, not always supportive of then the advice or um, guidelines that are given out that are more population level. Uh, and that's where, you know, the, the best we could do historically was give some more population level recommendations. But as data becomes more available, not just glucose data, but all types of data, I think that's the shift we're going to see is those more personalized interventions, recommendations. And that's where people are going to be able to see them, you know, their performance or their outcomes or their health move the needle more is when we really get to dial in that those unique differences. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating when you think about it, because like you mentioned, at a certain point, you have like population recommendations, then you dig a level deeper, and you can look at some of the strong studies that if they when you actually like break it down, you, you, you can sometimes tease out percentages even of just like, oh, like X number of people in the study responded this way. And then there's a small group that for whatever reason didn't. And you hope that you fall within the majority if you're just going to go with the population recommendations. But if you happen to be that minority group, then you know, you're, you're, you're sort of left doing a lot of trial and error unless you have some more kind of intimate looks into yourself personally. I think like CGMs, heart rate monitors, like heart rate variability type stuff, these type of like, more personal interventions, I think are really cool new ways to kind of drill down a little bit more and just simply open the door to individualized nutrition a little more than maybe it would have been, been in the past. Yeah, absolutely. It was really difficult to individualize something like actually individualize it. And so I think we're at that turning point. And what a lot of people probably don't realize when they're just reading the abstract from a study or the study headline, when it says, you know, it's better to eat X for your health, what they don't realize is what you just said, when you look at the details, and, and you look at the way the graphs look or the statistics is that there's always this subgroup that didn't fall into that headline or that takeaway. And then that's what we're seeing when you pair it with data is there's always these variabilities between people. And so once that's more accessible, I think it's really going to move the needle and just like health and wellness and fitness and being able to really dial in and speed up that learning curve. Like you said, if you're really willing to be determined and stick with it, you can probably figure out if you're the minority eventually, but it's a lot of trial and error and probably a significant amount of diligence and uh, just organization on the individual's level if you're doing it without some of these feedback loops where it's just going to get easier for the average person to kind of figure out these answers much quicker which is just kind of a win across the board mm -hmm. yeah and, and you know one thing i was curious about when i started learning about kind of some of these variances and the crazy ones are just like you'll have uh you'll have someone test like two different foods and 
even if both are like on paper supposed to create like a specific type of response from a glucose standpoint or blood glucose standpoint, you may have like wildly different outcomes for uh, like someone has like a piece of fruit versus a cookie. And I think most people would probably think, oh, that cookie is going to be a much larger spike because there's probably more actual sugar in it, less fiber, certain com combinations of things that on average would likely make that more catastrophic. And maybe they get that, but then someone else tests it and they get a reverse is uh, how much of that is just like the genetics of an individual where there are maybe certain foods that certain people should prioritize over others. Or is that something where like this person who gets a, a crazy spike from a specific food group, is that somewhat to do with them just never eating it and then deciding to have it on occasion? If they would kind of work that into their diet, do we see like a better corrective mechanism in our bodies that kind of minimize that, that much of a blood glucose spike? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a lot of research on this, trying to answer that question. Exactly. Like what are those different components that cause somebody to have such a different response to something than someone else? Like you can give a hundred people a banana and you might expect them all to respond the same based off of glycemic index, but they're all going to have different responses but we don't know exactly what the main drivers are. I think there is a large component that is genetics. Um, if we had to just guess based off of the research now, it's at least 50% of the reason for that variability is probably genetics, which means that that might mean that if you have a high glucose spike to bananas, you're probably always going to, but then it's certainly not the only thing driving that variability. There's also a lot of research that maps somebody's microbiome composition and that it correlates really well within their glucose responses. And we know that we can alter or change our microbiome composition to some extent. Um, it's much easier to change it in younger years, but we certainly can do it in adulthood too. And so we do see people that if they have um, GI issues or kind of inflammation, chronic inflammation, systemic inflammation, if you improve those things, sometimes those unique responses they have can get better over time. Uh, there's probably more reasons beyond just the genetics and the microbiome. We know also things like your environment, like air quality, water quality, all of these types of things are also going to influence some of your glucose responses. And then we know just from the stance of never eating something, especially for those who are, have been really low carb for a long time, you know, we, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more, but if you're reintroducing a high carbohydrate food for the first time, your body might not be as used to processing that type of energy system. And you might have higher glucose responses at first. And then eventually, um, that can get a little bit better over time. So there's there's definitely moving pieces to the puzzle and a lot of components to take into consideration, but some are easier to change than others. Of course, our genetics, not so easy yeah. to change. <laughs> yeah. Some were kind of stuck with dealing or working around more or less. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the interesting one, because that I'll talk about with low carb quite a bit on, on this podcast and with, with my coaching clients is just whenever I, we talk about any specific approach I try to highlight like these are the potential advantages with this, or this is what maybe the strengths of this approach are, but here are some of the trade-offs that are going to come with it. And then I think it's more about the person deciding if the lifestyle trade-offs are things that are meaningful or not for them. So like with low carb, like you said, there's always, you know, you, know, you, you drop the carbohydrates, you improve your fat oxidation rate. So yeah, you maybe are better at calling upon this like essentially exhaustless resource of energy but then 
you downregulate your body's ability to use exogenous carbohydrates at the frequency at which you'd like to be able to, if you're following a moderate or high carbohydrate diet. So um, it sounds like we see that in the blood sugar response data as well. Yeah, definitely. So we'll see that, especially if somebody is following really low carbohydrate diet for a prolonged period of time, typically we see this effect and it's become more amplified the longer you've gone without carbohydrates, which makes sense because your body's going through that adaptation. And then, you know, the scenario we typically see is somebody has been very strict ketogenic diet for two years, and then it's their birthday and they eat like half a cake (laughs) (laughs) and their glucose goes to like 300 for like a day. And they're like, Oh my gosh, what happened? This is why I never eat cake. And, and then our explanation is it's part of that reason that your glucose is so high because your body is not used to that exogenous carbohydrate source. Um, it's kind of in that adaptive physiological insulin resistance, which is not the same as diabetes type of insulin resistance. Um, but it's this kind of temporary state of adaptation. And so often, you know, if they really want that trade-off of every once in a while, if I'm going to have a lot of carbohydrates, I want to be able to handle that well, then that's going to be a different approach where we might do some carb cycling or maybe, you know, include smaller amounts so that you can have that where other people that trade off, just like you said, it's personal. They're like, actually I can go without the cake. I don't care. And so Mm -hmm. then it's more for them, a decision of like, I'm actually just going to like stay more on this and not have those deviations as much. Uh, So it depends of course, you know, what fits for your life, but we do see that adaptation occur, especially for kind of the more prolonged strict uh, dietary restriction. Interesting. I think my, my follow-up question to that in maybe we don't know this, but I'm wondering if how much of that's linear in the sense that like, if I'm following say a high carbohydrate diet and for a while and it, and, and my genetics are are okay with that. If, and, and so then in that scenario, I assume like their blood glucose control is going to be, be decent, but then they start implementing like a lower carbohydrate diet is if they would try to walk it down gradually over time versus say go from high carb to like strict ketogenic do we see like a gradual reduction in their body's ability to re- to to respond to the carbohydrate boluses or is there like kind of a leveling and then a drop off somewhere when you get kind of into those more strict ketogenic levels? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if I've seen that more in the literature and I certainly haven't seen it where somebody's wearing a CGM that whole time like stretched out kind of paired yeah. that way. Typically, what we see is that once somebody has gotten to that stage of very, very low carbohydrate intake, whether it was gradual or quickly, um, then what we see is that based off of how prolonged they are in that stage is where we see the detriment. So even somebody will have people who do it kind of more seasonally, they'll do lower carbohydrate in the winter and then higher carbohydrate, maybe in other seasons. And I don't see that effect when it's only like a couple months at a time. It's usually somebody who's been that lower carbohydrate for a really long time that that adaptation is more pronounced. Um, but we also, it is different too. in people who are very insulin sensitive, which is typically our athletes, you know, they are usually a little bit more, um, less subject to that effect. And again, it's different. Sometimes, you know, people do see it pretty dramatically when they try to increase those carbohydrates, they have to taper a little bit if they're trying to include more carbohydrates, but athletes in general tend to just be more metabolically flexible, even if they're not consuming the carbohydrates. So often we'll see 
um, very low carbohydrate athletes who want to try experimenting with some carbohydrates. And that's why they're using the CGM to really see how much, what types, when all of those questions are kind of hard to answer, unless you're willing to spend a lot of time, the data again, speeds up that learning curve. And usually they'll end up finding that they can consume more carbohydrates than they expected to while still maintaining pretty good glucose levels and still maintaining like a morning ketone level that they're aiming for. Um, so usually like as physical activity goes up, you have more threshold for some carbohydrate intake, but again, it's, it's very variable. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I feel like endurance sport, especially when you get into like the higher volumes or like consistent training and you're up to like five, six, maybe seven days a week, uh, of, of, of training that sort of a workout, you sort of kind of reverse engineer, like the muscular sink that like a strength athlete or a bodybuilder might have, where they have these huge reservoirs for, uh, sugars and carbohydrates to kind of go to when they eat them in any meaningful quantity. Whereas endurance athletes, tend to be a little smaller and have less of that muscle. So they have a smaller sink, but since they're emptying it on a more frequent, or maybe saying, or maybe they're fast forwarding the frequency at which they empty that sink, they sort of kind of have that same situation play out, even though they're kind of a different, a different physique, maybe you'd say. Yeah. Like it's a different mechanism. It's not that the, yeah, there's as much sink. There's not as much, um, reservoir, like you're saying, but the turnover is so much quicker. So it's, it's a different mechanism. I see what you're saying, but that's most likely kind of what's going on. But again, it depends, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially yeah. gender differences. Um, you know, we'll see typically, unfortunately that women tend to have a, a worse carbohydrate tolerance than men on average to their counterpart. Uh, so again, there's gender differences, there's environment, age, how much you're training, what your muscle mass is, all of these variables play a role. Interesting. Do, for the, for the gender differences, do they control for like skeletal muscle, like volume, I guess with those so that you're able to tease out whether it's like capacity versus just something unique to the, to the females versus males or. Yeah, there's definitely both of those factors at play. Skeletal muscle plays a, a huge role. Um, on average, men have more skeletal muscle than women. I think most of us probably realize that. And, and that plays a difference in your glucose sensitivity, um, your insulin sensitivity. But the other thing is just like hormonal differences. So testosterone tends to be an insulin sensitizing agent. So it makes us be uh, more able to process that glucose coming in, have lower glucose responses to maybe the same amount of carbohydrates, where of course women have less testosterone naturally, and they're having more fluctuations in their hormones uh, week to week, month to month, especially if we're thinking about going into menopause when those fluctuations are more uh, long lasting versus just kind of cycles each week those kind of fluctuations are things that men don't have to worry about and are impacted as greatly. So, uh, progesterone in general tends to be a more, um, glucose rising hormone. So when people are in the more of the luteal phase of their cycle, we tend to see glucose go up. They have less carbohydrate tolerance. It also has impact on performance and, um, fitness. And so I think both things are, are at play there, both the hormones and the skeletal muscle. Yeah, that's, that's really a, kind of a, a cool area to look at too. Cause I know as like research has gotten a little bit better with studying, you know, more females in sports, you starting to see like 
just like if, if I, if I just prescribe like a general like program for an endurance athlete, you know, typically I'm going to have like, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three weeks where we're kind of building, building like what I like to call micro stressing, getting them a little bit stronger and then resting recovery and, and that sort of thing over that two to three weeks. Then we'll do like a deload week where we reduce volume intensity and let everything kind of catch up before kind of taking the next step or heading into the next stage of training. Whereas you know, like with men, you can maybe throw that at them a little more in a little more of a blanket way or more of a uniform way. Whereas with women, you could have some interactions there where there are going to be, there's going to be a week every month where perhaps I shouldn't be throwing high intensity stuff at them. Uh, and then maybe a week where it would be more conducive for them to be able to really execute those type of workouts and, and actually get the most benefit out of that kind of stimulus. And it, it opens up the door to a lot of potential. I think it sounds like we're seeing some of that with the CGM stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting to be able to kind of correlate some of those changes. And a lot of women in our app are tracking kind of where they're at in their cycle and comparing that to their glucose levels, especially if you're really consistent of what you're eating, what you're training, then you can see those variables more clearly. Whereas maybe like an everyday person, that's not necessarily an athlete and they're eating something different every day and they're not working out consistently. It's harder to see that variable, but when you're really dialing in, you can tell the difference. Um, and I'm guessing you're probably familiar with like Stacy Sims work mm -hmm. and information. Yeah. We refer a lot of our athletes who want to dig into that more to her work because it, it's got a lot of helpful. She gives out a lot of helpful information of specifically looking at carbohydrate tolerance and, um, glucose sensitivity and all of those variables. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It get, I got more interested in kind of the variance topic when I listened to your interview on Kyle Kingsbury's podcast. <laughs> and for those who aren't familiar, Kyle's Kyle's huge. He's like, almost six and a half feet tall and just <laughs> solid muscle too. So like, he's got probably one of the, I mean, he's gotta be like 1% in terms of that, that, that musk, that skeletal muscle reservoir of potential to store, but hearing him talk about it was not only just kind of entertainingly interesting because of the amount of volume of food he eats, in some <laughs> cases, but it was also kind of interesting to hear just how he did a lot of kind of end of one experiments with himself and saw some pretty significant alterations in blood sugar response uh, for, for even with someone that size. And the one that was really interesting to me was when he was talking about doing like fasting, mimicking diets, or even just more strict ketogenic diets, uh, not, not like excessively, but just like periodically or seasonally. Uh, for a little bit of time in order to give him a bit more of a runway to have better glucose control. Can you talk to me just a little bit about like what's going on with like some, let's say someone does like a fast mimicking diet or something like that for a week or two. What are they looking at on the back end of that in terms of blood glucose control versus what they would have maybe had if they just had carried on without that sort of a, a lifestyle alteration? Yeah, absolutely. So really kind of what the end goal is with different tools, like um, going more on a ketogenic diet or uh, doing more fasting is to improve your insulin sensitivity. Uh, so that's your ability for the same amount of glucose coming in. You need less insulin because your body's really sensitive to the effects of insulin and then can clear that glucose more effectively. And so some of our biggest tools in order to improve our insulin sensitive insulin sensitivity is first, some basic things like eating a healthy diet. Like it depends on where you're starting, of course, uh, being a normal, healthy weight, but some of the most effective tools to kind of take it to that next level 
our fasting because it helps us, our body be able to do more with less essentially. And then same with that ketogenic diet, as we were talking about, you're training then this other fuel system. And at first in that initial adaptation, you're teaching your body how to be more sensitive to the smaller amounts of insulin and less glucose. I'm getting a rest from maybe using that other fuel system as much. And then the other big one, as we mentioned, is physical activity and especially um, resistance training can help build that reservoir where then your muscles are, are that huge sink for glucose and it really increases insulin sensitivity. So kind of what Kyle saw in his end of one, but what we've seen in other people is then when they implement some of these periodic tools or levers in order to improve that insulin sensitivity, you can see those effects even after maybe you've stopped doing it. So he can do the, um, you know, intermittent fasting protocols. So he's doing kind of more of the fasting mimicking where he's doing like a low carb meal once a day and not eating as much. And then he can see those benefits for a couple months afterwards as he's kind of fine tuned his internal system, so to speak. Um, in order to kind of reap those benefits. And then when he's wearing the sensor periodically, he can see when it's starting to trend back up. So he's eating the same meals, having those higher glucose responses. That's now a trigger to him to kind of cycle back in to reuse some of those tools, which I think is a really interesting approach and liberating for a lot of people because uh, we tend to be, we tend to go into extremes as humans, especially I think people in this field are people who are more prone to going to extremes. And often you find a tool that really works for you like fasting. And so then you're all in on it and then you're like doing it forever for the rest of your life. When sometimes those periodic approaches are actually better. Uh, Cause most likely that's what our body is built for too, is kind of the you know, different uh, variability and variations in what we're eating, eating things seasonally, sometimes fasting more, sometimes fasting less. And so I think there is also something to be said about kind of mixing things up uh, and trying to like stress yourself a little bit in different ways, but it doesn't always have to be the same stressor consistently for the rest of forever. Mixing that up can actually be really helpful for the system. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the thing that surprised me the most was kind of the staying power of what seemed to be a relatively, maybe it's minor to me because I've been playing around with low carbohydrate diets for quite a while now, but like, it seemed like it was a fairly minimal intervention in the grand scheme of things. If you're looking at it throughout the course of like a calendar year for the amount of time that, that at least Kyle had, uh, post post, uh, alteration to see those lower, those lower spikes with the kind of the same, same foods that were previously creating large ones is, is that timeline fairly consistent for people? Or is it something where like, you're much better off doing what you described where you're kind of have that CGM monitor on for a while. And you're watching to see when that kind of like reignites the, the higher spikes, uh, later on after that alteration. Yeah, it really depends on your starting point. So if we're working with somebody who uh, maybe is more following the standard American diet, showing signs of insulin resistance, we might have to do those interventions for a really long time before we see the benefit. And then if we take them away, we're going to see glucose levels respond you know, back to being higher right away because we still have to fix the system where Kyle, as you mentioned, is huge, full of muscle and has been physically active and healthy pretty much his entire life. 
And so for him, it's, it's easier to see the effects more quickly because he already has um, like a healthy baseline metabolic flexibility, metabolic engine, so to speak. So it really kind of depends on where you're starting at and how metabolically flexible you are you know, in the, in the beginning of how quickly you might be able to see those changes and how long some of these interventions might, uh, you might see the benefits for. So it really depends, which is typically the answer to a lot of questions, not what people are looking for, but yeah, we never seem to be able to get around that. Not at least not if you're looking for specifics at your specific individual scenario. So, um, I think it's, I think it's fun, fun to do that sort of stuff though. So I don't get too upset about it usually. Um, yeah, the the other thing I wanted to kind of circle back to, because I'm kind of interested in just like the lifestyle factor here. Um, if we look at kind of that sort of similar scenario, but different mechanism of like the the smaller endurance athlete and the larger strength athlete. When I think of the lifestyle there, I think like these these strength athletes, a lot of times they're getting, you know, their 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 time spent at activity since it's intense tends to be lower volume relative to say someone training for a marathon and their, their kind of effect of that is a larger stature, which gives them that, that reservoir of muscle that they're trying to get. So if they would like kind of say deviate from the gym for a couple of weeks or take an off season, the timeline where they're starting to like lose an appreciable amount of muscle mass and lower that, that sink is going to be kind of a longer time frame versus say like an endurance athlete who goes into like a peak training phase, then tapers for a race for say two weeks, does the race, then does an off season of two, maybe four weeks. Now they're looking at say upwards to six weeks where their metabolic needs have drastically changed from what they were doing in the lead up to that. Do you see a lot of issues with like glucose related things with endurance athletes since their lifestyle tends to be so polarizing comparatively to the average person? Yeah, that's a great question. And you definitely can see the effect as soon as you kind of stop some of that training. And that's where you really have to have a different nutrition and dietary approach, depending on where you're at. And I think, um, maybe some more like recreational hobby athletes don't think about that as in depth as maybe more professional athletes are thinking about it, but especially when it comes to carbohydrates, if you're consuming close to what you were in in training versus now suddenly you're tapering off a little bit. It's usually a pretty dramatic difference in how you're tolerating those carbohydrates and how you're responding. And so certainly need to account for that because it is going to be a bigger drop-off. Surprisingly though, people can lose a lot of that muscle mass much faster than you think too. Um, a lot of times I feel like people look the same, but they're losing some of that insulin sensitivity if they're not lifting as much more quickly than they probably appear physically. Uh, there's even research that people who've taken just one week off from the gym, and this isn't like, uh, weightlifters professionally, this is like recreationally have enough of a statistically significant decrease in insulin sensitivity just from that one week off. And so that can be applicable to kind of your everyday person who's on vacation for a week. And then they're kind of struggling to get back into the swing of things when they get back and really just even taking that time off can, can make a pretty significant difference. You can gain it back really quickly too, which is the pro, you know, that muscle memory you've touched, taught your body how to be metabolically flexible. Usually it's much easier to get back into it than the very first time you're ever doing it, but there is that drop off kind of in both 
types of athletes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, I always, I always really have a lot of fun kind of thinking about just the lifestyle factor and how that changes different dietary approaches and why one thing works for someone or different for another. And then obviously you have to include the other things that we talked about, like genetic stuff, like gender and all this other thing that can kind of add, add, or add some complexity to everything that we're trying to figure out here. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about too, is like a lot of times when we look at like nutrition or nutrition culture, I guess, I feel like oftentimes it gets led down this path of like elimination versus addition in terms of what is going to actually add value to the person's well-being. And uh, I wanted to make sure we addressed addition. So like you have these scenarios where some person's eating like X type of diet with with, with foods and stuff in there. And they're seeing like, like kind of like maybe concerning blood sugar issues. Uh, I know there's some information about things like uh, berberine, uh, apple cider vinegar, and even cinnamon, I believe as some potential additives that could help uh, kind of correct some of that stuff to some degree. And I guess in theory, then with, with those sort of additives, you could uh, remain eating the way you were without necessarily like removing some of the foods that you were otherwise were otherwise problematic. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of, I don't want to call them hacks because they're real and they're genuine and some are addition in the supplements and I can dig into that, but even simple lifestyle factors like your timing around when you're eating certain foods and when you're exercising, um, especially again, for the more like recreational person, if they're having a really large glucose spike to something at breakfast and but their workout is, you know, at 5 PM switching to include that food after your workouts, so maybe in part of your evening meal, instead of being part of the morning meal, and you might see significantly improved glucose responses. So adding something like just the way you're timing your meals around a workout, or even going on a walk after a meal, like making sure you're moving your body, you might still be able to eat those things, especially if they're nutrient dense, we don't necessarily want to remove them, but sometimes it's just the strategies of physical activity around that. Um, and then additions, when it comes to just real food, making sure you're always including protein with everything. So a lot of people, um, you know, will will eat something where they're just snacking on fruit or they're eating, you know, who knows what, but if you include some protein first, that can make a really big difference for almost everybody as well. And that goes with making sure you're always pairing it, but even eating the protein before you eat the carbohydrates can make a really big difference. So those are two easy ones. And then, um, some of the other additions that you mentioned, berberine is what we have found to be probably the most effective supplement when it comes to lowering glucose responses. With berberine, we see the most success when people take it consistently though. So I see a lot of people who will take it. There are a lot of berberine supplements that are marketed towards like high carb meal berberine. And so people will take it before a high carb meal. And we don't see as much of effect as if they're taking it consistently. Um, so it seems to be something that works more, uh, over time, kind of it's similar mechanisms to metformin. And that's also kind of how metformin works. Whereas apple cider vinegar that you mentioned can work better in those acute moments. Um, so some people will either put apple cider vinegar on the food itself, whether it's like a salad or something they're eating or have some like pickled vegetables that were soaking in apple cider vinegar and include that in your meal. Or sometimes people will just take like a shot of it or drink some of it diluted with water before a meal. And that works really well in acutely lowering your glucose response to that meal, as opposed to kind of the long-term benefit we see with berberine. 
Um, so those are two like really easy hacks, so to speak, if people want to include them. But then there are some of those other alterations, um, like the way you think about meal timing, even the way you think about when you're eating. So sometimes a lot of people are really sensitive to higher carb higher carbohydrate meals or even just larger volume of meals later at night. We tend to have a circadian rhythm to our insulin sensitivity in the same way we do with other hormones. Um, and so for the average person, the later they're eating, the higher the glucose response for that meal. And that's especially true when it's like shift workers who are eating in the middle of the night or somebody who's maybe eating their largest meal at like 10 PM. We often see that of just when people have busy, crazy schedules or they're traveling. And so if you can shift the timing of your meal or make that later meal lighter, smaller, lower carbohydrate, that can also make a really big difference. So there's all these different factors that can play a role where you might be able to experiment and tweak and add some things and test some different variables and be able to still eat that same exact meal and have a much better response. I think a lot of people's initial reaction when they have a glucose response is, oh my God, I can never eat that food again. And that's usually not true. There's almost always some way that we can kind of uh, change the way that you're eating it or what you're doing in order to include it, especially again, back to trade-offs. If it's something you love, if you're like, this is my favorite fruit ever. This is so sad that I had a glucose spike to it. <laughs> Usually we can find a way to make it significantly better than that initial response might've been. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors include Athletic Greens and their flagship product, AG1 and Optimal Carnivore. If you want more information on discounts and details about those two sponsors, you can head to the show notes or to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I want to get into the timing side of things. I saw some interesting stuff with my own experiments with this, but before we get too far away, I do want to to ask about the, the berberine versus um, apple cider vinegar difference in terms of apple cider vinegar, maybe being a little more like acute in the moment with berberine having kind of a, a time of uh, like two weeks, it starts kicking in or something like that. Is that, do we know if that's some sort of a gut bacteria shift with the berberine that it's taking it longer than that? Is there a different mechanism that makes that one more kind of a build up approach? Yeah, it's possible it's re related to gut health. The mechanisms are similar to the way metformin works. So it increases your body's ability to take up some of that glucose because it's affecting our glucose transporters. They're called the GLUT4 or GLUT1. And so it's activating different pathways that help us take that up. Um, I'm not sure exactly why the mechanism is kind of delayed as opposed to that acute effect, but that's just what we've seen historically is that it doesn't work very well in like right away as which is what people want it to be. Um, but we see kind of that gradual increase. And I think it's more related to it's improving insulin sensitivity over time and helping those transporters to work more effectively. Whereas apple cider vinegar tends to just blunt that glucose response in the moment. But if I had apple cider vinegar today with my meal, I'm not going to see a better response to a meal tomorrow because I had apple cider vinegar today. Okay. Interesting. And is there a timing aspect with the apple cider vinegar or can that just be kind of like within the meal or is it better to say have it before or after or right in it? Yeah. We usually see it work best if you do it before, like right before a meal, or if you're doing something like a salad with the vinegar, eating that first, and then the rest of your meal um, is usually the most effective way to kind of get that benefit. It is funny how just like our, like when you sit down to like kind of a more formal meal, it 
tends to follow these rules somewhat to a degree where like you start out with some sort of salad, then you get into like the main course, which usually has some sort of like protein based meat or something like that, or some sort of protein focus. And then you move on to dessert, which is going to be the most uh, blood sugar like impact out of everything there, but it's at the end. So it's likely minimized. Um, I, I guess like if you want to get real crazy with modern stuff, if you have to park far enough away from the restaurant, then maybe you <laughs> walk 10 minutes yeah. to get to your car. <laughs> but it's funny how that stuff kind of all like, like developed, I, I presume before we knew about some of this stuff. Yeah, it's super interesting. I've definitely thought about that before. And then I think we've taken what was probably naturally effective and altered it into a way that's less effective, where now it's like, we give you bread before your meal. I'm not really sure if that was supposed to be how we used to do it. But uh, some some of the things we've lost along the way, but it is really interesting that I think we tend to know as a society or as a culture, um, what works well, you know, there's always like the amazing stories of somehow, uh, people in previous cultures were able to figure out how to utilize a food that can be poisonous in one way, but they've learned how to manipulate it into a way that's now healthy. Those type of, um, learned behaviors are so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that rabbit hole is pretty expansive. I I had a Dr. Bill Schindler on, this was a long time ago. And he was talking about that exact thing where he studied a tribe down in South America that their, their diet consisted of this one type of potato, like, like not all their diet, but a huge portion of it. That was like the foundation of their diet. And it's, it's this particular potato was very poisonous in its just like natural state but they would like bury it and essentially like ferment and cook it over time and then dig it up. And it was, it was totally benign at that point. And it just, it just baffles you to think like, yeah. how, who, who figured that out? Like who ate? The yeah. What did that off? trial and error <laughs> <Yeah>. look like? <laughs> and then who, yeah. And who was like, well, maybe if we just bury this thing for a while and eat it, or I guess someone probably found one and ate it and it had been buried yeah. and they realized, Oh, this is, this is uh palatable and usable now and, and no one died from it. But yeah, it's, it's wild to think about how that stuff developed and how we got to where we did. So there's some, there's some fun little uh, trend lines in, in the history of eating outside of what we've done in a more modern state. If you want to look at that stuff. Yeah. It's super interesting. Just look at what was done historically and kind of avoid the newer, probably learned behaviors where we might be skewing some of it a little bit, but it's really interesting. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So for the timing stuff, uh, there's a few things I'm really interested in with this. And some of it's just kind of like, the blood sugar response minus food. So um, I I noticed when I first started wearing a CGM monitor that I have, uh, I had like a little bit of a blood sugar rise in the morning, no matter what, like regardless of whether I had anything or any, any calories, whether I had coffee or not. And my only thought was that I've historically done the bigger workout that I have uh, done for the day kind of in the AM hour. So it's like usually within an hour of waking up, I'm out the door running the more significant portion of my workout for the day. Um, And I was curious if there's some sort of like learned blood sugar response that occurs if you kind of have a routine that has that fluctuation with like heavier amounts of work uh, and things like that, that would, that would just be a preempt uh, something to kind of like mobilize blood sugar for the purpose of whatever it is you're doing, uh, independent of actually introducing a carbohydrate source. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Kind of two two parts to that. One is the learned behavior. Um, we do see this sometimes, especially if people eat at like the same exact time every day, your body starts to anticipate that and your hunger hormones can also get cycled to that um, schedule. And so then when you alter that, you'll, we'll typically see that people's glucose responses start to go down a little bit when they're normally going to eat because your body's starting to like create that process of expecting food, but then related to the small glucose increase in the morning, this is actually a pretty common trend we see. So it may or may not be related to the fact that you have that kind of learned behavior of a schedule. Um, but this is kind of just a normal dawn phenomenon, so to speak, where we tend to see people have a small glucose increase in those early morning hours. And it depends on your circadian rhythm and when your normal sleep wake cycle is for when that occurs but it's kind of like your body's natural alarm clock is how we explain it, where kind of you get the surge of hormones that release some glucose from the body and help you sort of start in that, um, wake state kind of natural coffee that your body's probably trying to give you. And so it's actually very common to see a glucose little bump right in the morning hours, right before you wake up or right after you've waken up. And then usually like very healthy individuals, it will go back down as your body's insulin sensitive. And it's kind of um, the counter regulatory process involved with that. Whereas our ins insulin resistant folks, maybe people who are pre-diabetic or PCOS, they'll see that bump and then it doesn't come back down and it might still rise up. Um, and that's usually kind of where we can see that there might be something wrong metabolically, but often we do see that increase. So those two things may or may not be related of just kind of your training schedule, or if it's more of a, just a normal increase you might've always seen. Yeah. That's interesting. So then if you have a person who has that kind of rise that keeps going, which indicates something problematic, is that person just going to have to be a little more mindful of what kind of foods they end up throwing into the equation in that state? Because I would imagine if you have that situation where you have this like kind of higher than average natural rise that stays up and then you eat something that's really carbohydrate based, you're just going to send that even higher yet. Yeah, absolutely. And especially considering how long that person's been fasting, you could be um, in an even more insulin resistant state in those morning hours. So really focusing on protein and fat and limiting the carbohydrates and having a lot of nutrients, doing some like mild physical activity, walking, movement, any type of activity in the morning will kind of help to counterbalance that. But then we would implement all of the strategies that would help somebody become more metabolically healthy. And then over time, that response will, will improve as you become more insulin sensitive. But then, yeah, you have to be really mindful of what you're eating at those hours, which is why like our traditional recommendations in the nutrition world for, you know, what we're telling pre-diabetics or diabetics or anybody with metabolic syndrome to eat don't work at all. <laughs> this is when you see the like population level recommendations just absolutely not work for people. Uh, the only people that those recommendations usually work for are the opposite of what they're intended for. Like maybe an athlete or somebody who's super insulin sensitive, um, for most people kind of that higher carbohydrate morning meal, like the average American is, is going to be a really bad idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And the other thing I had that I did a little end of one experiment for, and I want to redo this one because I don't, I want to do it for a longer period of time and just be a little more strict on how consistent I am with it. But one thing I noticed uh, when I was wearing a CGM for a while was if I had like a meal in the morning, like my first meal of the day and had that exact same meal in the evening around dinner time, I would have a, I'd have a 
much bigger spike with that meal in the morning than I would in the evening. Um, in, in the first case, it did come down pretty quick. So it wasn't like it was concerning that it stayed up there and took forever to come back down. But it was interesting that I could almost keep a flat line more or less with that, with that dinner meal. Um, is there anything to do with that versus like, is that, or is that, is that a hormonal thing as well with, uh, um, like the morning hours being a little different as my body's maybe trying to like downregulate as I'm getting more tired and it's getting closer to bedtime or could that have something to do with like what I mentioned before, like workout timing and things like that? Yeah, it's, there's probably a lot of variables at play there. And we do see some people where they'll do what the experiment you did. And some people have the higher response at breakfast or some people have the higher response at dinner. And it can just depend on a lot of variables going on there. Some people, it might be hormonal where um, I think some individuals in those morning hours are more susceptible to kind of the like stressed adrenaline cortisol response. And that's going to put them in a little bit more of an insulin resistant state and lead to that higher glucose response. Another factor at play is just how long you've been fasting. Um, so if you're doing more like intermittent fasting approach and maybe your dinner meal is earlier and it's been a long time until you're eating that morning meal, eating something on a completely empty stomach, usually there's not much to blunt that glucose response. We have quicker digestion, which usually leads to a quicker glucose spike, um, which is part of the reason if somebody's breaking a long fast, especially we tell them to kind of ease their way into it, have some small amount of protein first, and then kind of gradually build up um, the, the meal content and composition. And we can see that on a smaller scale with just daily intermittent fasting. So that can play a role as well. And that's where we'll see somebody who will eat, maybe they drink like a cup of juice on an empty stomach versus after a meal or the same with the dessert, like we were talking about, it's going to be a really big, um, difference in your glucose response. So kind of depends on how fasted you were before the dinner meal versus breakfast meal, how, um, sensitive you are to maybe some of those cortisol changes and then also the training schedule, kind of how physically active you've been before or after each of those meal times. And then for the people who have the really high glucose spike in the evening, sometimes that's related to just if that meal is really late. Like if we're pushing where it's eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock that you're eating that meal, it's usually more so related to the fact that as it's getting closer to evening and closer to that middle of the night circadian rhythm, going to have that decrease in insulin sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, the other one I had that is sort of non-calorie dependent, and I was curious of what the response is, is caffeine. So if someone has like a cup of black coffee versus, uh, say like just a cup of coffee with whatever their meal is in the morning or breakfast or whatever, is, is there something independent, like with a cortisol spike that you might get from caffeine that could increase your blood glucose, even if that is just calorie-free caffeine versus say something you had with breakfast? Yeah, great point. And that can probably play a role into your response that you were just talking about as well. Mm -hmm. um, caffeine of all types, you know, most commonly coffee is another food that we see uh, varying responses to. So some people will drink three, four cups of coffee and just have like even glucose levels. They feel great. And that's probably mostly a genetic component where they're just not that sensitive to caffeine. Um, where some people they'll drink 
one glass of black coffee on an empty stomach and they see a glucose spike, they feel jittery, they feel anxious, and they're just probably more sensitive to the effects of caffeine. And their body is registering that more as a little bit of a stress response and kind of sending that cortisol up, which then leaves uh, or leads to glucose rising as well. Um, and that's something interesting where if we're seeing people who are drinking a lot of coffee, not drinking a lot of water, not eating any food and having those high glucose responses, just pairing the coffee more with a meal instead, having them kind of wait a little bit to drink some of the coffee, eat some more food with it, and they'll see a better response both to the meal and to the coffee. So it's, I would say that one is most likely driven by genetics, but it is variable between people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It gets, it gets to the point where after a while you're just like, okay, I, I think I've removed all the variables that could potentially change the outcome of this. And then you find another one or two that you should have adjusted. Yeah. So, yeah it, and, and then if you, if you really want to run a real high quality, like case study, you kind of, you, you probably have to be open to being a little more consistent with things like coffee and stuff like that. I would imagine. Yeah. You have to control all those other variables. If you really want to know the exact thing at play, which takes more time and is a little bit more of a meticulous approach, which definitely some people do, but like very type a people will do kind of controlling everything and knowing the exact answer. But if you don't want to go that approach and you just want to kind of experiment and tweak, you can usually find the, the low hanging fruit, the big major items and, and get some takeaways pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I think you, you probably want to know what happens when you do something that's going to be practically something you'll end up doing for a long period of time or forever yeah. versus something that you're going to white knuckle your way through for two weeks and then find out like, oh, this is great on my score, but it's not something I'd ever sustain. Therefore, I need to find another alternative anyway. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think a lot of people's first approach when they put on the CGM is they want to test all these foods they've always been curious about, um, like, you know, random food products or random restaurant foods. And that's great because you get to see what happens in those scenarios. But what we recommend typically instead is to eat your normal routine, like do your normal day to day habits, because then you can see, you know, what is affecting you most often, how you are actually responding to that routine, and then tweak the things that are more realistic for you. Um, like, yeah, some people might be like, well, I'm never eating that again. And now it looks way better. But they know as soon as they take it off that they're going to go right back to eating the other way. So you have to be true to yourself too, so that you can actually know, you know, if this is a realistic routine, I could follow, what does it look like? What experiments are worth running? Um, if you know, you're never going to get rid of your evening glass of wine, then don't even get rid of it on the CGM either. If you're like, I'm never going to do yeah. this, <laughs> you know, you got to know yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Find the best path forward with that included. Then if that's something that's a non-negotiable, makes sense. Yeah. So then that kind of leads me into like kind of the, one of the final topics I'm interested about is just like the behavior change that you see with people when they have this level of information. Cause I think, I mean, it's one thing to, be like, oh yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cooking, uh, cupcakes for my son or daughter's birthday party. I'm going to like, like, you know, taste a little bit of it and have a little nibble here and there and things like that. And then not think twice about it versus doing that same thing. And then having your CGM monitor say, Hey, look at that. You just spiked your blood sugar. Uh, do you see like that sort of a behavior change happening when people are having these sort of devices connected to them in a meaningful way? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is one of the most effective behavior change tools I've ever worked with. So 
I'm a dietitian by trade. And previously, when you don't have a lot of tools, you can educate somebody on something and they may or may not do it. You know, our motivations aren't always very strong. And then now working with clients who who are using the data, it is like night and day and the difference and just the ability to stick to behaviors in the long term and not just kind of like short term motivation. You know, our brains are hardwired for immediate gratification. We love that like immediate feedback loop, which is why social media is so addicting, which is why, you know, the taste of the sugar is addicting because it's that immediate gratification that it tastes good. And so then data like this helps fill in that gap of the immediate gratification or immediate consequence that is more tied to what you might actually want in the long term, um, which is probably more like health or your, you know, weight loss goal or your pattern or program you're trying to stick to. It's really easy to lose that motivation in the moment when, yeah, you're making the cupcakes where now it's like, oh, that's not even tempting because I don't want to see that on my data. And so it's (laughs) so much easier to have that like true internal motivation that you're actually going to stick to. So it's it's a great behavior change tool. And that's for anything that's real-time feedback, real-time data really closes that feedback loop between your behavior now and the outcome. And that makes habits just super sticky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I wonder too, if you've seen anything with the staying power of that, because one of the questions I'll get from time to time when people know that I've used a CGM before and they're curious about checking out, they'll ask like, well, you know, do I need to wear this forever now? Or is this something I can just collect a bunch of data within, you know, a couple of weeks or a month and then kind of just use that and implement it. And generally what I tell, tell people is like, it's probably going to depend on your personality. Like if you're the type of person who wears it for a month and answers all the questions you have, you can probably just replicate what you were doing and assume it's going to stay pretty consistent. And then if you decide to make a lifestyle change down the road, that's maybe where you'd want to throw one on again to see what that does versus the person who's a little more like out of sight, out of mind. And as soon as they take that CGM monitor off, it's like, I'm going to get away with everything because I don't have this thing kind of you know, over my shoulder, so mm-hmm. to speak. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. It depends on your personality. I think for a lot of people, exactly what you said, there's the information gathering stage in the beginning where you probably want to wear it more consistently. And for some people that might be one month is enough time for you to gather all the information you need. Whereas for other people, maybe it's more like three months. And then from there, it might be periodically putting it on. If you've changed your routine or you feel like you're in a rut or you've lost some motivation, but then there's that other type of person. You know, we ha- we have clients who have worn it consistently for years since we started the company because they're like, when I take a week off, I immediately go back to all. <laughs> it's the only thing that keeps me accountable, and it's worth it. They're like, I know exactly what it's going to say. I'm not learning anything new, but it holds me accountable more than anything else. That they just wear it consistently. So some people don't need that data all the time to be able to stay accountable. Uh, but some people honestly do. And it's a worthwhile trade-off. It's kind of an expensive accountability partner, to be honest, but it's cheaper than maybe them slipping back into their old habits that are going to lead towards, you know, a life that they don't want for themselves. So if it works for you in that way, you know, for some people, it's really effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. And I mean, this has been great to kind of hear everything you've seen uh, with all this stuff is because I think this is just going to get more and more popular. And as these devices continue to grow, we'll probably see more add-ons that make them even more impactful. So uh, before I let you go, I'd love to hear like what NutraSense has 
planned with this in terms of uh, application now and things that you're maybe working on that are going to improve it or give people additional add-ons that can be useful in their nutrition uh, journey, so to speak? Yeah. So one thing that we do that I think is pretty unique to NutriSense is we do pair all of our members with a one-on-one dietitian support. And the reason we do that is because as we've mentioned here, there are a lot of variables at play and there are a lot of nuances. And so that is a human on the other side to kind of help you sift through some of that nuance. And so some people might just ask them a question every once in a while where it's like, what's going on here? Am I missing anything here? Where other people might message them daily for more kind of handholding or support. They're kind of there for what, however you feel is best suited for you. But then looking forward to kind of what we want to do at NutriSense is connect more of those other data streams to answer some of those questions more easily. So maybe that's connecting your menstrual cycle tracker so that you don't have to kind of understand those variables on your own or connecting um, more of the HRV data so that you can see those correlations. So some of those data integrations and presenting them in a really intuitive and easy to understand way is, is what we're really focusing on right now. Awesome. No, that's great. And I, I love the kind of the landscape of like just having the the virtual assistant kind of with, with any of this stuff, whether it be yeah. CGMs or like what they do, what they've been doing with um, like some just different like dietary approaches where you have kind of that, that backend resource where, you know, you, you get these scenarios where you get the, you get the information that tells you what's happening, but then you can kind of be paralyzed by the amount of information and yeah. not knowing where to start or what to actually do about it. And people, I think, can sometimes just say like, you know, if they're not, if they don't have that person helping them out, that kind of knows the path, uh, give up because they're, they, they feel powerless with that information. So I think that's cool that you guys are building that stuff into it all and, uh, making it a little bit more of a streamlined learning curve for people who are interested in checking out what's going on inside. Yeah, definitely. I think, like we said, if you have a big glucose spike and you're like, oh, well, I can never eat that again. We don't necessarily yeah. want people walking away with the wrong takeaways. Mm -hmm. You know, our goal is to actually kind of help them, really help them reach their goal and kind of do it in a sustainable way. So I think that human component is really important. For sure. Well, awesome, Kara. This has been great. Uh, if you want to let the listeners know where they can find you and what you're up to, whether it's social media or websites and things like that, feel free to share that with us now. And then I'll also tag that in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. So uh, to sign up for the CGM program is just you go to our website, NutriSense.io. But on there, we also have a ton of information if you're just curious or want to follow along. So we have a blog, a newsletter. We're always kind of putting out the different things we're seeing, learning, thinking about, and same on our social medias. So that's all NutriSense.io on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, so that's the best place to kind of follow along from a glucose standpoint. And then if you're interested in following me and what I'm up to, it's just Kara Collier one on all socials. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks a bunch, Kara. It's been great to uh, chat with you about this and I'm, I'm sure I'll get a ton of questions about this. So <laughs> maybe we'll have to have you back on down the road when you guys have some, some new information to share. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Thanks Zach. Take care. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. -on -one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and 
regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.